0: Hi everyone, welcome to Meet the Investigators, a podcast by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. I'm your host, Shilalici. Ahead of Press Freedom Day, we spoke with a journalist and ICIJ member who won the Nobel Peace Prize last year. I'm
1: Maria Ressa. I head one of the co-founders of Rappler in the Philippines.
0: Maria is a Filipino journalist who grew up in the United States, where her family moved in 1973 after then-President Ferdinand Marcos declared martial law. After more than a decade away from home, in 1986, she decided to go back to Manila and work as a producer and then reporter for CNN. In the following years, Maria opened CNN's Manila Bureau and the Jakarta Bureau, covering everything from natural disasters to terror attacks in South Asia.
1: What motivated me during that time period was frankly learning, 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 learning the craft, going country to country, uh, learning to manage a bureau, learning to understand political systems, learning to understand cultures. And then over time, it was not just learning, that I began to realize that information is power, and that is necessary to demand justice. Now, in today's context, with technology taking over the role of gatekeepers, the role of journalism goes back to its like real basic assumption of journalism, which is that you're not going to lie and that the facts are not debatable. This is a battle for facts. If we win the battle for facts, we then can do the rest of the part of being a journalist, but that facts are the anchor of a shared reality.
0: After spending many years overseas in 2004, Maria went back to the Philippines, where she headed the news division of one of the country's largest broadcasting companies, ABS-CBN.
1: I wanted to go back and figure out what the future was going to be like of news. And so I went from being a reporter, handling a small bureau, to handling a thousand journalists handling our regional network group, as well as the six overseas bureaus we had. I learned a ton being a news manager. And I realized that the largest organizations, they were getting caught flat footed because here comes this internet. And in ABS-CBN and most of the large organizations, you don't put your best people on the internet. You put your best people on your prime time news because that's where the revenues come in. And you put kind of your younger people and maybe your third string on the internet at that point in time, right? And then I realized, oh my God, this is going to fundamentally change what we do.
0: That's when Maria and three of her colleagues decided to set up their own news organization, Rappler.
1: It was an experiment. We were like, oh, well, we'll try it for a year. If it doesn't work, then we'll go back to what we were doing. And if it does work, hmm. Who knew, right? We've kept it at about a hundred people. It's a very dynamic, creative destruction moment. And I wanted to stay agile. There are three pillars of Rappler, technology, journalism, and community. And it's funny, you know, I am a journalist and yet I place technology as number one because I think that's the biggest game changer. The journalism, The standards and ethics and the mission doesn't change, but the forum does. And then the last part is community. So when we raised the seed fund for Rappler, the elevator pitch was that we build communities of action and the food we feed our communities is journalism. Building community was built into the way we think about journalism. You need to know what your community needs. You're not just putting stories in a black hole. The technology today, what we're doing is building our own tech. Uh, We started uh, actually a decade ago, we built our platform, but I learned so much in the process. The technology is what will enable journalism because the tech will not only give you your platform, but it will also determine your distribution. And I think that's the biggest shift. The goal of journalism is to make the world better. Right. And that's kind of fun to be able to say at my
0: advanced age, that is still the goal. It's interesting that uh, technology, that you say it's one of the fundamental pillars of your organization, is also one of your beats in the sense that enemies, <laughs> frenemies, in the sense that your organization is has been one of the first um, actually deciding to cover tech uh, from a different point of view to understand their, the power they have in society and the impact they have on people. How did that happen? How did you decide to investigate tech companies? In my last years with CNN, the last
1: decade or so, I was working on on terrorism. Post-9-11, my home base was the world's largest Muslim population. It was Indonesia, right? And so I was looking at how the virulent ideology, how it could spread, and I used social network analysis to do that, right? How do you radicalize? How, how does it go? How do you build this? And um, when we started at the tail end of that, I was beginning to see that social media was being used this way, was, could be used. And so the idea for Rapper was deeply connected to what we saw that was being used for evil. For example on YouTube in 2011 we saw a Filipino speaking Arabic asking jihadists from around the world to come to the Philippines for jihad and you know I did the story on him but then I thought if you can spread this through social media well why could we not use social media for good the idea is to look at information cascades as a way to see how society Moves. So
0: that was the idea for the, for the mood meter, for example. Before Facebook introduced its emojis, Rappler's site already had what they called a mood meter. After reading an article, a reader could click on a happy or sad face based on the emotions triggered by the story.
1: The idea for the mood meter is to be able to see how a news piece travels through our society in moods. And so we had that data and that was kind of fascinating. It was a hop, skip, and a jump to then study this shift in 2016 because it was a radical shift for us. When we began to see candidates, it was then Duterte, uh, and their supporters begin to use anger and hate. That was rare in the Philippines because up until then, you know, we had a mood meter. And the top mood in the Philippines is not anger. It's happy. (laughs) Filipinos are happy. They click happy. So, in 2016, that changed. It became anger. And that was when we began to to see something is off. Something is happening. Something is being changed. And then we began to map it. And so in 2016, when we saw anger and hate being whipped up by politicians, by government officials, who would normally want to be uniting society, we began to map information cascades. And then we began to look at networks of disinformation, networks that spread lies, right? And then slowly we could track behavior over time of these networks of disinformation. If we can do this, obviously Facebook can do this, Twitter can do this, YouTube can do this, right? Why are they being allowed to do it?
0: Rappler's investigation into social media and disinformation in the Philippines in 2016 was important to understand what led to the election of autocratic president Rodrigo Duterte. It led us to where we are today, right? To to
1: show how we are being insidiously manipulated by power to maintain power and how it has weakened democracy. It's also led me to see that the inherent design Of these social media platforms kill facts actually spread the lies faster and further than facts encourage the worst of human behavior has turned them into behavior modification systems and it it's part of the reason democracy is weaker all around the world and i would even say is dying all around the world you look at ukraine today and the lies that putin that the russian media has used uh to justify the invasion of ukraine we saw this in 2014 the same bottom-up attacks from fake accounts and then the same things coming from the it was then the foreign minister of russia at the u.n and nothing was done you know so now with this happening i think this is a pivotal moment globally it will determine look at the actions of nations the actions of companies, the actions of social media. This is a tipping point, I think.
0: Duterte's six-year term as president allowed by the Constitution is over. And this month, Filipinos are called to vote for the next president.
1: Right now, the front-runner in our presidential elections is Ferdinand Marcos Jr., the son of the dictator who was ousted 36 years ago in a people power revolt that inspired people power movements all around the world. Rappler has actually exposed Marcos disinformation network since 2019. In September 2020, Facebook took down information operations coming from China that were polishing the image of the Marcoses. It's insidious manipulation, and this is part of the reason it's so hard to know what is fact and fiction. And if you don't know, you cannot mobilize society. In 2016, we were the first domino to fall with the election of Duterte. And then a little more than a month later, it was Brexit. And then you had Catalonia, you had down to like the US presidential elections that brought Trump.
0: For those of you who are familiar with the Philippines' recent history, the name Marcos will ring a bell. Ferdinand Marcos Jr., also known as Bonbon Marcos, is the son of the kleptocrat who ruled the country for about two decades, until 1986. During the Marcos dictatorship, thousands of Filipinos were tortured jailed without due process or murdered by the regime. A government report later found that Marcos and his family had stolen between five and ten billion dollars from the Philippine Central Bank. More than three decades later, the scion of the Marcos family is running for president.
1: Our future's at stake and the irony is it's not just the future that's at stake, it's also our past. Because, you know, let's make no mistake if if Ferdinand Marcos wins, will we ever celebrate the people power revolt that ousted his family? Will we be able to get back all the wealth that is still 36 years later that this country still hasn't got? When you don't have history, when it is being revised in front of your eyes, when, you know, Ferdinand Marcos the father is now buried in heroes' grave, right? This is something that President Duterte enabled. Duterte was the first social media president of this country. So again, everything is connected. And I think the biggest problem really is that the laws in the real world are not reflected in the virtual world. So that needs to change in order to give democracies a fighting chance.
0: After Rappler's reporting on state-linked disinformation, Maria became the target of a vicious hate campaign on social media and beyond. Last year, a study by UNESCO showed that 60% of attacks were designed to undermine her credibility and reputation as a journalist. 40% of those attacks were targeted at her personally. Maria is also the defendant in about 10 legal actions brought by the government and people close to President Duterte. As Rappler's CEO, she spent the last six years fighting bogus charges, including alleged tax evasion and cyber libel. Maria has denied wrongdoing.
1: I mean, the reality is I could still go to jail for the rest of my life. In less than two years, I had to post bail 10 times. And three of those 10 cases have already been dismissed. We still have seven cases left. And then we just this week got 12 more complaints in a Davao fiscal's office. Again, these are meant to just harass and to intimidate us. But at this point in time, I'm almost like, please, you know, I guess what I learned is that don't get intimidated. Don't voluntarily give up your rights. In a strange way, I have President Duterte to thank for really forcing me to draw my own lines. How far will I go to defend The truth. Well, I learned that I would go pretty far after six years of this. I I just want to be a good journalist. I want to do the right thing for this time. What will happen next? I could go to jail for the rest of my life. So I don't know. So I just throw it up in the air. You know, it's that serenity prayer. Is
0: there anything that you do to relieve the stress?
1: I mean, we have a great team. My co-founders are, you know, we have a joke among the four of us that, Only one of us can be afraid at a time. We rotate the fear. We plan worst case scenarios. Because inevitably, whatever you can imagine is worse than what the reality is. So if you're prepared for the worst, it's actually always better. Every battle begins in your mind. I look at the bright side, even the Nobel Peace Prize, right? Uh, Who would have thought? But I just did the right thing. And this is actually something that in Rappler- we've been saying since 2016 you know we want to look back a decade from now and know that we did everything we could that we did the best we could for our profession for our country
0: the nobel peace prize for 2021 has been awarded to two outstanding representatives of the press in 2021, Maria Ressa and Dmitry Muratov, the veteran editor of independent Russian magazine Novaya Gazeta, received the Nobel Peace Prize. The committee said it chose them for, quote, their efforts to safeguard freedom of expression, which is a precondition for democracy and lasting peace. I listened to your speech and you, you were there as a representative of every journalist uh, around the world. And that was great because I guess, for many of us, but especially for those working in very difficult conditions, it was kind of a symbol that also journalists mattered um, deeply. How do you see the fight for press freedom now? It's fundamental.
1: I mean it's fundamental to the to the survival of democracies. The Nobel committee was uh, was prescient in in a weird way, right? They chose journalists at a year when, We have never been as besieged. You know, the last decade has shown the increased dangers for journalists. I mean, the work that ICIJ does actually is probably the best response, which is that we must collaborate, 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 right? Because the the real the physical cost, the emotional cost, the mental cost for every journalist today has just increased. It is a recognition of how difficult it is to do our jobs, but also a recognition of how critical our jobs are today. What do I see our jobs today? It is standing up to power. It is demanding the truth. It is holding power to account. So that Peace Prize, I think, is for all of us to continue. And now I always felt this year was going to be the tipping point. You know, are we going to descend further into tyranny, into fascism, or are we going to restore? Are we going to strengthen democracies? Because we're, it's very weak. Do you have any advice
0: for young aspiring journalists?
1: Be excited. Be creative. Don't look at the past and
0: analyze exactly
1: what is happening today. Stick to the standards and ethics, the mission of journalism. That's important. But the form will change. What I look for when I hire a journalist uh, is not, you know, can they write well? Can they do television? Well, it's no longer television, but it's actually courage. Because in the end, what makes journalists different from anyone else who is writing or who can ask good questions, what makes a journalist different is the courage to confront power, right? That you can actually demand the answers in a way that is respectful of the institutions um, in order to do that and to do it at a time when the costs are so high. In order to do that, you need courage. To young journalists, my gosh, when I was your age, I didn't have your power. You have tremendous power now. Don't let naysayers get you down. This is an incredible time of creativity, of imagination, you must create what journalism is going to become.
0: And on this inspiring note, I want to leave you and thank you all for listening to another episode of our Meet Investigators podcast. Please share it on social media or send us feedback at socialicij.org. Till next month, ciao!